So, hey, what we do here at our church is we try to have an emphasis on small groups. We believe that's a big, important part of being a part of a local body. And so every year as we kick off the fall semester, we have what we call Small Group Sunday, where we focus on small groups. And so the title of the message this morning is, What Makes Small Groups Successful? And here in just a minute, we'll be in Romans 12, working through uh, verses 9 through 21. But let me pray for us, and we'll jump into our time together this morning. Bow your heads with me if you will. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here together, to study your word, to fellowship together in a, in a way that would honor Christ, in a way that we could be real with our, with our struggles and with, our, with our, our, our joys, and that we would just relate to one another in a way that would honor and glorify you. So be glorified, we pray again, in this time together, and it's in Jesus' name, amen. Bread in one form or another, has been one of the principal forms of food for mankind from the earliest times. In fact, did you know that the word bread shows up at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis? Certainly you might remember there when God's giving the curse to Adam and Eve for falling into sin, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall shall eat bread. Not only does God mention bread in the very first part of the Bible in Genesis 3, but Jesus mentions bread. Certainly you're familiar with where Jesus said in John 6, 35, that I am the bread of life, right? Whoever shall come shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now we talk about bread. I'm just saying God talks about bread. Jesus talks about bread. And did you know you and I talk about bread? We talk about bread because we like to eat bread. Unless you have a gluten allergy this morning, which I know that number keeps increasing even in my own family, but we still like bread. Now, all of us have had some really good bread and all of us have had some bad bread that you just wanted to spit out. But this morning, I just want to rejoice in in some really good bread. All right, let me just give you real quick my five top bread places. Are you ready? Number five. Number five is Olive Garden. It just keeps coming back to me from my childhood days. We never went to a restaurant, but if we did, Olive Garden was close to the top because of the breadsticks and the salad. My brother and I would order like breadsticks and keep it coming. Another basket, please. Another basket, please. So I haven't been to Olive Garden in a decade, but it's still there in my mind, Olive Garden breadsticks. All right, number, number four. I'm counting down. That was five. Number four, Lucille's Smokehouse Barbecue. Now, I go there for the barbecue, but I'm telling you, there's something in that cinnamon butter with the bread that you just kind of start off with dessert before the barbecue comes. I'm a big fan of those bread rolls there. All right, number three is, believe it or not, Cheesecake Factory. Now, you know, they got the French bread. They've got that oatmeal bread. It's actually not that great unless it's hot. I think it's just because we're anticipating we're at Cheesecake Factory. So this is good. This is good. And we're going to enjoy this as we get ready for the main course. And of course, that big piece of cheesecake that's coming. All right, let me move on. Number two. Number two, you ready? Drum roll number two. It's Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel. Come on, I grew up in the South. And for those of you who've been to Cracker Barrel, you know they got some biscuits and some cornbread that make you want to reach across the table, as they say in the South, and slap your mama. Come on, you know, you know you've heard Tim Hawkins talking about the bread at Cracker Barrel. So, I mean, that is some pretty good bread. But number one, number one, and it's only here in Santa Clarita, people, number one bread for me is Wolf Creek. 
You got to go to the Wolf Creek restaurant. It's actually not so much about the bread as it is the olive tamponade, right? Whatever that olive sauce is that you dip your bread in, that is where it's at. So tonight, we will all be going there together as a church. They're, they're not even paying me for this commercial, but the bread at Wolf Creek's pretty good. All right. So what I'm saying is that as we talk about bread, you got bread in your mind this morning, kind of thinking bread. God talked about bread. Jesus talked about bread. Now your pastor's talking about bread. You're like, Adam, what's the point? Well, in addition to the way that bread is seasoned, which is what makes good bread good, is it also has to have the right yeast culture. Yeast is the leaven in bread which makes it rise. And the main purpose of yeast is to serve as a catalyst in the process of fermentation, which is essential in the making of bread. Yeast simply feeds on the sugars in the flour, and then it expels carbon dioxide, which is the gas that makes bread rise. Now, no one understood this clearly until the invention of the microscope. Before then, this process was thought of as some sort of magic. But it was Louis Pasteur who, in the late 1860s, identified yeast as a living organism and the microscopic agent responsible for causing bread to rise. Again, you say, Adam, why are you telling us all this? Well, I'm telling you this because this is Small Group Sunday. And if this church is to ever rise, no pun, yes, the pun is intended, pun intended, okay, to the occasion to which God has called us to reach this community, then I believe that it's going to happen primarily in our small group ministry. So I believe that our small group ministry is the secret to this church's success. Now, it's not magic. It is the fermentation process of Christians feeding off of the love of Christ, the word of God, and I believe, in a sense, off of each other in small group relationships that releases a certain aroma that will make this church grow and expand. Now, we're a Bible church, so you may argue, Adam, I don't really think it's about the fellowship of God's people. It's all about the preaching of the word. I mean, if you want this church to really grow and succeed in accomplishing all that God wants for us, why don't you start preaching like John MacArthur? Why don't you preach like John Piper or Steve Lawson or even, yea, verily, I say to you, Abner Chow. If you just were preached like him, then man, our church would be awesome. Or maybe you're out there today and say, Adam, it's not so much about that, I get it, but it's about the worship. We need Chris Tomlin. We need Phil Wickham. I mean, we need the Gettys here every Sunday. Or maybe you're here and you're like, no, nah, man, we need Skillet. Where is Skillet? Let's get some Skillet in here. Oh, skillet fans over there, all right, all right. Some of you in here are like, no, nah, it's not about the preaching, it's not about the worship, it's about the money. We need some big donors. What if you talk to Elon Musk? What if you talk to Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, get them to make a donation? Then we could really do some really cool stuff with our church. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not about the preaching on its own. It's not about worship, though we enjoy it, and I wouldn't trade Jerry Harris for anybody. And it's not just about the people that give, which all of you do, or most of you do. We're thankful for that. I'm saying this morning, it's about the fellowship of God's people coming together and loving Christ and loving and serving each other. In fact, I would argue 
that without some type of smaller gathering outside of this morning service, if without a smaller gathering of believers coming together for true fellowship, for Bible study, and for prayer, and for practicing the one another's of the New Testament, then we're not really functioning as a healthy church. You see, church isn't about just showing up at 9 a.m., and church isn't about showing up at 1045 and then you go back to the dorm, back to your house and do whatever it is you do on the weekend. Ch- a church is only as good and as healthy as its people. And if the church was only about me, then this church would be a sad and deficient church. If this church was only about Josh, our family and youth pastor or our elders or our deacons or small group leaders or our interns or ministry leaders, then this would be a very sad church. This church is about Christ in you. This church is about who you are in Christ, being the leaven God's called you to be. And I'm encouraging you this morning, let's start fermenting. Okay, let's make the bread rise with Christ in us to be all this God wants us to be. I mean, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you yourselves are like living stones, and you're being built up into a spiritual house, into a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. We're living stones. We are living organisms. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the importance of being a part of a small group. And I want to give you three headings in this message this morning that will help us look at the question, the title of our sermons, what makes small groups successful? All right, let's look at number one, three parts that make up a small group. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, just says this, a bold and beautiful savior. It starts with Jesus, right? That's where everything starts. It starts, it ends with the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was bold when he left heaven and he came to earth. Like Philippians 2, 6 through 7 tells us, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and he became born in the likeness of men. Jesus was bold when he went to the cross, like Philippians 2, 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus was bold when he swept drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane, where it says in Luke 22, 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When Jesus was bold, when he confronted the Pharisees in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and it is your will to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus was bold. But not only was Jesus bold, Jesus was beautiful. He was beautiful when he forgave the adulterous woman in John 8:10, when he stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus was beautiful when he blessed the children. In Matthew 19, 14, he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom that belongs the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was beautiful when he, when he healed the leper in Matthew 8, Uh, verses two and three, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately he was cleansed from his leprosy. 
Uh, Jesus was beautiful when he raised the dead and when he presented himself to doubting Thomas. Remember, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him and he said, my Lord and my God. I'm just giving you a little quick overview of the boldness and the beauty of Jesus. And this Jesus must be invited to your small group. In fact, Jesus led the very first small group and a number of 12 apostles. And then Jesus spent extra time with the inner three, Peter, James, and John, who came with him on very special situations like in the garden and on the top of of the Mount of Transfiguration. And this Jesus was and is the greatest leader, the greatest teacher, the greatest shepherd the world has ever known. And I would argue that Jesus spent more time discipling the 12 apostles than he spent preaching. Jesus spent more time in small groups than he ever spent in large groups. The biggest impact Jesus had was pouring his life into 12 men who turned the world upside down. Just think about it. I mean, of course he preached an incredible message. There's the Sermon on the Mount, and there's the Olivet Discourse, and he waxed eloquently lots of times on on the sermons that are preached throughout the Gospels. But we understand in the three-plus years that he lived in in his ministry after he revealed himself as being the Son of God that most of that time he was spent in real relationships with other people. And so the first part of your small group is you got to have Jesus there. I'm saying that a small group without Jesus is nothing. A small group without Jesus is like having a barbecue with no meat. It's like trying to bake a cake with no sugar. It's like going to the ball game with no ball, right? The the point of getting together is to keep Jesus at the center. You, You have to have Jesus at the center to have true meaning and purpose to even be there. Otherwise, you don't have Christian fellowship or you don't have a true Christian gathering or you don't have a true Christian purpose. So let's not forget small groups are really built around the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, second part that makes your small group is the, the important part of it is be a bloody and a brilliant message. A bloody and a brilliant message, that's the gospel, right? The gospel is about life and it's about death and it's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about what is discussed in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and he was buried and on the third day he was raised in accordance with the scripture. The gospel is about that transformation taking place in your heart where you were dead, Ephesians 2, 1, in your trespasses and your sins, but God being rich in mercy made you alive together with Christ. That's the gospel message that transforms us. And it's something that we ought to never be ashamed of, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16 says. And so we're saying that your small group is built around Jesus, and your small group is built around this message of the gospel. Your small group should be discussing the ins and the outs of the gospel. Your small group should be discerning what is true gospel and what is false gospel. Your small group ought to be able to understand the true implications of the gospel, the gospel that transforms you into being a son or daughter of the king, the gospel that informs you of God's love for you through Christ, and the gospel that compels you to be a witness of that truth to your neighbors and to your friends and to each other. And if your small group 
is not centered around this gospel message, then what is it centered around? I mean, Christian small groups should never be centered around a baseball team, even though I'm more of a Dodger fan than an Angels fan, right? That's not what makes my small group, right? A Christian small group should not be centered around a certain ethnic identity. A Christian small group should not be centered around school choice, of we're the public school families, or we're the private school families, or we're the homeschool group. No public kids allowed in our group. That's not what small group's about, right? You, you could choose whatever you want for school, and we support you, and we love you, but may we never be broken off in little cliques as a church about the kind of people that we hang out with. We need to be around one another who are in Christ together, living out the graciousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the gospel is certainly got to be an intricate part of your small group. And the third part of your small group, first, there's Jesus. Second, there's the gospel message. And third, there's you. And that blank is a bunch of little people. I love you. Bunch of little people. That's you and me, right? Think about it. Jesus is an amazing Savior. He's known throughout the world, whether people believe in Jesus or not, world history has been affected by this one man, more than a thousand men put together. So Jesus has got to be there, and Jesus has is, is not only got to be there, but the gospel's got to be there, this worldwide message that trumps every religion and trumps every culture, and then there's you. So it may feel a little bit like, oh, well, there's a great big Savior there's an incredible, timeless message of the gospel, and then there's you. And you might just feel like, well, I don't have a lot to offer. I'm just a normal person. I'm not necessarily even well-known. Nobody knows my name. Nobody listens to my stories. Nobody clicks like on my Facebook or Instagram post. It's okay, because we still love you. And you still have a part to play as part of the body of Christ. And you still have a part to play in being involved in a small group discipleship type relationship with other believers. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says it this way, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And then 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. What I'm saying is that you and I, as small and insignificant as we may feel like we are, we are like that yeast in that while we are little and while we are seemingly insignificant, while we may appear to be microscopic, without leaven, the bread will never rise. And without you, your small group will never get off the ground. Your small group will always be missing out when you're not there. When you're not playing a part of loving and encouraging the body, there'll always be a little something missing. No, I'm not talking about a cult. I'm talking about cultivating people together who are born to love Christ and to love each other and to serve each other. I'm talking about a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who love you. And I'm talking about us experiencing Christ's love together in community. I'm talking about us being part of a church family that knows you and that is there for you and that will encourage you and that will help hold you accountable. The second heading I want us to look at this morning, our main part of our text of Romans 12 that we're now getting to is the seven descriptions of sanctified socialization. This is what we aim to do in small group 
We, we aim to help bring about a sanctified process of growing together as we socialize, but we want it to be centered around Christ and the gospel. And so in Romans, Paul highlights the beauty of Christ, and he highlights the glorious gospel, and he highlights the fact that God has irrevocable promises to his people. And then we get to chapter 12, where he highlights the way that Christians should live in light of the gospel, and that we are to be transformed, as the beginning of the chapter says, by the renewal of our minds, and then we are given spiritual gifts to use for the glory of God and to serve each, other's, uh, each other with, and all of these are to be employed so that we can encourage one another in the ways of Christ. And in verses 9 through 21, there's about 30 things that Paul says here, and just by way of overview, I boiled it down to about seven so I love the heading in my Bible in this section. It says, the marks of a true Christian. You could change that this morning and have it say, the marks of my small group. These are marks of what should be happening in small group. Here are seven descriptions of sanctified socialization. A, your next blank, is simply to love one another. Right? Love one another. Verse 9 and 10, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So after talking about how we are members of one body with different spiritual gifts in verses one through eight, verse nine says, let your love be genuine. This means let your love be without hypocrisy, that your love is sincere that it is true, that it is not fake, it's not a farce, it's not phony. Uh, the word love here in verse 9 is the word, the word agape. This, this is a, a what can I do for you kind of love. This is a, a sacrificial love. This is a commitment to uphold others and their interests over your own. Uh, this is the kind of love that God shows to us through Christ that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5a, that Christ died for us, right? He demonstrates his love by sacrificing, and we're to demonstrate our love to one another by sacrifice. It's the kind of love that God calls us to to show others, and there's two ways that you can do this according to verse 9. As you're loving one another, it's abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. And I'm saying that you can help do that in small group. Right? You can help with that, and, and this, whether it be evil thoughts or evil words or evil actions, we need to hold each other accountable that we're abhorring what is evil, that, that we're clinging to what is good, that we're encouraging each other to hold to what is good and to not let go, to hold on to your marriage, to hold on to your sobriety, to hold on to your commitment to Christ and his church. We are a family, and this means that we love each other with sacrificial love, as verse 9 says, agape, but it also includes the word in verse 10, to love one another, phileo, that brotherly love. This, this kind of love here is the kind of love that you would have for a brother or for a sister. It's the love the, that you have within a family. And when I think about you know, brotherly affection, I, I had an older brother growing up, and I didn't know he loved me until one day we're playing backyard football and some other bully comes up and starts picking on me and my brother stepped in, took care of that guy and I'm just like, oh, my brother does love me. He's got my back. I'm serious, I had like an effect on me. I'm like, I didn't know you loved me. You know, and he's like, he does. This is the kind of love we're talking about. We got each other's back, right? I mean, the world is hard enough out there, right? We're, we're, we're in the onslaught of a, of, of a battle in the culture, are we not? 
at work, at school, every day. And when we come to small group, it ought to be refreshing. It ought to be a place where we can just take a, a deep breath and be like, oh, it's so good to be with God's people. I feel like I'm home. I'm on my turf. I mean, I'm getting pushed around out there in the world, but here is a safe place where we stick up for each other and we have each other's back and we're supporting one another. Another way to show love at the end of verse 10 is to outdo one another showing honor. I mean, as silly as it may sound, it could be giving up the better seat. It could be honoring someone by giving them time to talk and share about their day or their life. It could be honoring them by speaking highly of them in front of others. It's almost here like a holy competition of who can bless each other more. Maybe you bring a meal over. Maybe you come clean someone's house. Maybe you run an errand for someone. You, you and I should be thinking of ways that we can practically love and and outdo one another in love. It's a, it's a holy competition. You know, when I was a physician's assistant living in Savannah, Georgia, working in open heart surgery, I had to get up early to go to the hospital. We we're at the hospital at 6 a.m. every day, operating at 7. And uh, it's a fantastic career. And uh, I shared a house with a bunch of guys, other young professionals. And me and this one guy shared the same bedroom. You know, we had twin beds on either side of the room. And I'd get up at 5, I'd take a shower, then have my quiet time and I go to work. Well, one morning I, I take a shower, get out, and I, I'm like getting dressed and my bed is made. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. I, I don't remember making my bed. So I didn't think much about it. Read my Bible, went to work, got up the next morning. Same thing happened again. I'm like, okay, it's, it's pretty weird. Like, what, what's going on here? Well, the third morning after it happened, I, I'm like, the bed's made and my roommate is like asleep in his bed. So I go over and I'm like, hey, dude, like, are you, like, did you just make my bed? And he's like, you know, really sleepy. It's like 5 a.m. And he's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, why did you do that? And he's like, I was just trying to think of ways I could serve you. Have a nice day at work. And I'm like, you are so weird, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but I never forgot it, right? It was like, what? That guy made my bed? You're talking about outdoing one another in love? Try it this week. Roommates. Try making your roommate's bed. Siblings at home. Make your brother or your sister's bed. <laughs> husbands, husbands, have you ever made the bed? You can do it, guys. You can do it. I'm just saying it's like just practical little ways of loving one another. I just love that holy competition. How can we outdo one another in love? You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. Philippians 2, 3, that I've referenced a little bit, uh, it's about counting others and their interest is more important than your own, right? 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. And that's what we want, right? In, in our lives, in our families, certainly in our small groups. We also want to, your next blank, we want to serve the Lord together, already talking about it a little bit, but it says, don't be slothful in zeal, verse 11, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And the main part of verse 11 is serving the Lord. And how, how do you do that? Well, the verse says, don't be slothful in zeal. In other words, to be fervent, your small group, I think, ought to be excited about getting together and serving the Lord together and excited about serving the church together to be fervent actually literally means to boil over. It carries the idea of being stirred up emotionally and to be enthusiastic and to be excited and even to be on fire. I mean, maybe we should have a little pep rally to see whose small group is the most fervent, the most fired up. 
Watch out, I, I won a superlative in high school, most school spirit. Come on, baby, that was it. Mm. So, you know, the idea here is like there ought to be a fervency to getting together with saints. We want small groups to, to be in service mode. You could serve at summer fest and at college fest and at youth fest and at kids fest. There's a lot of festivals around here, right? I mean, you could serve in Awana. You just heard us talk about it. We need more servants. And maybe if you're here and you're not doing that yet, it's a great opportunity to get plugged in there. Acts 20, 19, serving the Lord with all humility. It's understood. It's a way of life. 1 Peter 4, 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. A third description of a sanctified small group would be this. C, pray for one another. You see it there in, in verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. We, we want to rejoice in the hope of the gospel. We want to learn to be patient in the midst of the persecutions that we may be facing. And, 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 and one way to do that is by constantly praying for one another. And one of the best ways to rejoice in hope and, and of, and, and the gospel of deliverance, and one of the best ways to be patient in tribulation is to know that you're not alone. And, and the best way to communicate you're not alone is like, hey, let me pray for you. Let's get together and let's pray about small groups ought to be a place where we're able to actually do that. You know, sometimes on Sunday morning, someone gives a prayer request and I might just say, hey, brother, let's pray about it right now. You know, I'm the pastor. I know that might, you know, kind of feel weird for you to do that. You know, somebody's like, hey, I need, to, I, need, I need prayer. And you're like, let me pray right now. Why not? But if you're not comfortable doing it, which is fine, I, I get it. Certainly in a small group, you could feel a little bit more comfortable, right? In small group, in fact, most of our small groups either do a Bible study or they review parts of the message with some of the study notes that you have on the back of your outline. And so after spending some time in the Word, our small groups break up into smaller groups and they pray. Often the guys with the guys and the girls with the girls. So it mixes and mingles with every small group a little bit different depending, you know, on the night. But we do make prayer a priority in small group. And I would say that most people who go to small group probably enjoy that time the most. You know, they just enjoy it. Man, you know what? It was really good when we got together. We were able to share a little bit deeper and just to pray for each other and to build each other up. That, that's what God's called us to, to pray for one another. It's what we read about in Acts right before the, uh, the day of Pentecost, that they were all together in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. And that's what we ought to be doing, devoting ourselves to prayer. That's a, I think that's a weakness in our church. You know, it's a, it's a weakness maybe sometimes in, in my own life. But small groups provide that opportunity to say, hey, we're going to pray together. We're here together. We're in the word together. Let's pray together. Let's, let's follow the, the sentiment of 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. A fourth description of a healthy small group would be meet each other's needs. Meet each other's needs. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So this is certainly one of the biggest opportunities you would have in small groups. We, we want to work together as families. We, we want to meet each other's needs. We, we want to understand true hospitality while it's reaching out to strangers or who have needs or having people in your home who, who you may never be able to pay back. Certainly, we also express hospitality with those that we know and love. We want to be like Acts 2.42, devoting ourselves to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's a great example there in Acts 2 about what the early church was doing. They were they were motivated to, to get together and to meet each other's needs, to share all things in common. Again, I, I preached on that many times. It's not like some type of holy, sac sacred, you know, communism, but it is certainly as Christians saying, hey, we have a heart to help each other. We do that in small groups. We're there to help one another. 
A fifth description of a sanctified small group, E, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another, verses 14 and 15. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I think these two verses are demonstrated um, by Christ in such a perfect way that he certainly um, you know, demonstrated rejoicing and, and mourning with those who mourn. I'm thinking about how he wept with Mary and Martha when Lazarus, uh, you know, had died. I'm thinking about how he, he was just there for others. And hopefully, um, you know, you're not being persecuted, as this verse talks about, these verses talk about, by those in your small group. But to be persecuted, you know, by someone else, it still hurts. And you could come to receive encouragement in your small group who, who are, are, are there for you. And hopefully when, when you're there together in a small group, again, you're in that safe zone. You're in that place where, where you are surrounded by those who love you. And, and then verse 15, again, talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice. You know, that ought to be something we're doing in our small group. And, and let me just be honest with you. It's not always easy. You, know, you think, I always like read, oh, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. That's like Christianity 101. Well, it's actually kind of hard to do. You know, what do you mean? Well, what if that, you know, family that's there, they get, they, they get a new car or they go on a great vacation or their kids have got all straight A's in school. Are you rejoicing with them or do you kind of look at your house and your car and your family and be like, oh man, <laughs> that family's got it going on, right? And it's like, well, it's not about that family, right? It's about Christ in each one of us. And wherever we excel, we want to be able to rejoice with others who are experiencing God's goodness and his blessing. So we want to rejoice with those to rejoice. And you know what? We want to mourn with those who mourn. When you go through difficulty and you're having a hard time and you, you want to be able to share about maybe that wayward teenager or maybe a difficulty in your marriage or with family or the loss of a loved one, you should hopefully in a small group be able to just really be real about, you know what, here's what we're going through. And hopefully as a, as a small group that we're going to be like, hey, you know what, thanks for sharing that. Oh my goodness, that sounds like really tough. I can't imagine what you're going through. Let me, let me pray with you. Let me encourage you. There's just something about rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn, who, which can really only be done in the power of the Spirit, in the act of, of, of grace and humility that Christ would allow us to, to be that way. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I pray that God would help us grow in these ways of just pure kindness for one another. A sixth description of a sanctified small group would be F, live in harmony with each other. Live in harmony with each other. Verse 16, live in harmony with each other. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You know, this idea of living in harmony with each other is more than just that, that Coke commercial that came out when I was a kid, you know. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Remember that commercial? I won't, I won't bore you anymore, all right? But, you know, it's more than like offering a Coke to somebody, right? Living in harmony, again, is sharing Christ together, right? It's sharing Christ together and give careful consideration to something. It's to set your mind on something. It means to develop an attitude based on careful thought. In essence, it's living in harmony is to be like-minded, you have to, you know, you may have different opinions on different things, but when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to primary doctrines of the Bible here at a church like ours, you know, we're going to be kind of on the same page on the majors and we want to be able to, to be in harmony about that. Now, some of the minor things we might have differences on and that's okay to have a little bit of a variation, but small groups not about just getting together in constant debate, 
right? We want to just really focus on how can we love and serve each other. And small groups are not about, you know, click groups either. We, we want to associate with each other. A small group is the perfect opportunity for you to get to know those that you might not typically uh, hang out with. You know, it's not just about, oh, we hang out because we're just all best friends. It's like, you might be best friends, but it might be like, you know what, we hang out because we just really value and appreciate the relationships in our group. We live in harmony together because we share Christ together. We have a common core and common convictions about the truth of God's word. Second Corinthians 13, 11 says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The last characteristic that I wanted to mention here of a healthy small group would be overcome evil by doing good to each other. And as you know, verses 17 through 21 talk about not repaying anyone evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, this is typically thought of in the context of how to treat your enemy, which I I get that, but I I also think that sometimes we might have people in our small group that they just kind of rub us wrong. You know, you ever been in a small group and you were just kind of thinking, you know what, I kind of wish that person wasn't in this small group. You know, like, that's human nature. But I'm asking us to move beyond that and say, you know what, that's the person I ought to be spending extra time praying for, loving on, being nice to, because that's what Christ would do. And as you do that, then all of a sudden, that person that was maybe your least favorite might become your favorite. I mean, who knows? It's just about leaning into that relationship. You know, I talked about when I was a PA. I remember when I was in PA school, I had a roommate um, that was a professing believer. And he and I were the only two believers I know of in our class. And I remember halfway, well, towards the end of the first semester, he told me, he's like, hey, man, I just want you to know I I requested a new roommate for next semester. (laughs) And I thought, I'm like, dude, seriously? Like, what's up? Like, I know, like, maybe we're not best friends, but you're leaving me? Like, I'm that bad that we can't, like, finish the year together? And he's like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he didn't quite say it like that, but we had, like, different schedules. I would get up early. He would stay up late. We had, you know, different diets, different friend groups, whatever. We just didn't click a lot. And I just remember feeling like, man, we are like two Christians, and if we can't represent unity together to our class, how are we going to win our class to the Lord? And so I just asked him, I said, hey man, what do you think about us just praying together every night before we go to bed that God would help us be better friends and to be a better witness for him because I knew he also wanted to, you know, help win our class to Christ. And he said, okay. So we just prayed together every night. We just, we just pray every, every night we just pray together. And at the end of the two weeks, he's like, I think I'm going to keep you as a roommate. You know, (laughs) it's like, you know, this guy that apparently I was rubbing wrong became like a good friend because we were praying together. We're leaning into, I'm just saying, the person in your small group that you may feel the most irritated by might be the exact person God put there for you because you need to grow in grace and humility to recognize, you know, what really matters is loving Christ together. 
that I want to be to be able to practice these marks of a true Christian in my small group. And I guarantee you that if you, throughout this year and throughout your life, if these kinds of principles are put into practice in your normal life and in your small group, you're going to have the best small group experience ever. And that leads us to our last heading that I wanted to mention, number three here. Just four changes a small group could bring into your life. Just being real practical here. A, moving from a sealed envelope to an open letter. Some of us are just a little bit too, you know, hold our cards too close to our chests, right? What, what can you read in a sealed envelope, right? You ever got the mail and there's an envelope and you can't, you know, you, know, you see what it's from, but you don't know what they said. Maybe it's for a family member, but you're just kind of tempted to open it. What can you read? Nothing. I got somebody holding it up to the light here, and I got you steamers out there who, or, who, or who are doing whatever you do, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, and small group, it's time to open the letter. No more sealed envelopes. We're an open letter, my life, your life, that we could talk and relate to each other in a way that would be transparent, in a way that we wouldn't be so tight-lipped and so privatized. I, I'm encouraging that would be a healthy change for you in being a part of a small group. Here's B, going from a lonely planet to purposeful relationships. You know, some of you don't have many friends. And some of you have too many friends, maybe of the wrong kind. And here, we're trying to move away from the idea of loneliness. I hear loneliness all the time. It's a big deal in our culture. I just feel lonely. I feel lonely. I'm not part of this friend group or that friend group. Well, at least in a small group, it's like, hey, you know what? I, I'm here to be a friend. I'm here to love others and have, on purpose try to seek and pursue others in, in a meaningful way. Or how about C? It provides service opportunities in bite-sized pieces. You know, you might not be part of a formal ministry like own youth staff or one of the Awana leaders, though, though there's room for you to serve there. But in small group, it might be like, hey, I can still serve. I can help clean up. I can help bring an extra dish. You know, I can help serve needs that come up in, in our small group that I'm aware of. It's kind of like an informal way to really practice service. And then I would say lasting change, D there in your outline, lasting change happens at close range. They were saying if, if you just kind of stay off to yourself and you're not rubbing shoulders with others, the chance of you changing is slim. But if you want to change and grow to be conformed into the image of Christ, then obviously I think the preaching of the word is the key to that, as well as worship. But it's also fellowship. It's being together with God's people, practicing the one another's, where there can be real change that God brings into your life through even other faithful saints. And so the take home for our message this morning, if you are not presently in a small group, ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I'm saying here that it is a sacrifice to be in a small group, but I think you're making a bigger sacrifice by not being in one. If you're not in a small group, you're going to miss out on opportunities to have meaningful relationships that center around Christ and the gospel and one another. So if you are part of a small group, is it worth it? I hope that you'll say it is. I hope that this year you'll lean into being a part of a small group in, in a new and fresh way. The next take-home point says, if you are in a small group, ask yourself, what kind of changes do we want to make this year? You know, that, that could be you. Maybe it's a renewed commitment to be there. You know, maybe some of you have kind of fallen off and you haven't really done small group in a while. You were like, oh, we're too busy or our kids are too young or I just don't feel like going. And maybe this message, something in this message would just encourage you, you know what? We need to make a commitment to be there. We, we need to really be a part of God's church. It's not about just showing up on Sunday and leaving. It's about showing up and being a part of what God's doing. And how about this last one? 
If you know someone who is not in a small group, ask yourself, would you be willing to invite them to come? Would you be willing to invite them to come? It doesn't take, you know, that much courage, hopefully, just to say, hey, we have small group. We meet on Thursday. We meet on Sunday. We meet Monday night. We'd love for you to come. We're having a great time. We're studying XYZ this semester. We would love to have you. It could be a member of our church. It could be a visitor who just showed up today. It could be a neighbor that's not even part of our church and say, hey, we have small group. We'd love for you to come sometime. And God, God would use, I believe, small groups in an amazing way to help us grow in our love for each other. So I pray that you'll take to heart what we've talked about this morning. This morning in your uh, bulletin that we have, this one-page bulletin, it has all the small groups listed right there on the back under all of these different ministries. At the very bottom, we got a couple in Canyon Country, a couple in Valencia, and then most of them are here in the Newhall area, and we would love for you to get plugged in. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this in prayer. You're going to have an opportunity to go out, interact a little bit with these small group leaders who will be out on the patio and get to know what they're doing and hopefully sign up. Most of them meet every other week. It just gives you a little bit of a rhythm for your own family life because we know we're all like over committed with what we've got going on. And if you're here today and you're not a member of our church yet, you can still jump in a small group. And the real heart of our church is that we would build relationships outside of even this hour together in meaningful ways for the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's pray together and it will be done. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to just worship you through song, to worship you through uh, giving and through our fellowship together. And we pray that as we consider um, small groups and what that looks like at our church, and we know, you know, it's not the perfect way to do it, but it's a way to do it. And we, we just pray that you would be at work in the hearts of our members and, and, uh, and, our, and our regular attenders here to become really a part of what's going on on a grassroots level, on a more meaningful relationship kind of way, God. So we pray that you would stir us up toward love and good deeds, and that would be something that we would want to lean into and not shy away from. And so thank you for the encouragement, for the marks of a, of a true Christian from Romans 12. Use these principles in our lives, uh, both at home and here at church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.